Well, listen, if you missed last week, um, you missed a doozy. Paul basically, in the section of Scripture last week, he covered 2,000 years of, of, of history. He went, he went from a promise that was given to Abraham, which if you were to look in the Bible, you'd find that at the very left, right? The very first book of the Bible in Genesis chapter 15, this, this promise that was given to Abraham. Then he fast-forwards 400-some years to the law that was given to Moses, and then he actually wraps it up by, by going all the way up to Jesus Christ, showing how Jesus both fulfills the promise perfectly and he fulfilled the law perfectly and didn't do away with all of them, but actually showed how they fit together. Um, and what he's going to do this week <clears throat> is he's actually going to pull out even bigger. So he covered a lot of ground, but what he's going to show now is this. This isn't just Jewish history lesson. This isn't just for Jewish Jewish people this is for the entire world. Now, I am wearing a bright orange shirt. Some of you caught that because you're awake and you're paying attention. Um, I am wearing this shirt for at least a couple of reasons, one of which I'm going to tell you about right now. Um, this, this is an organization that we support. I'll tell you more about that later. Um, but World Vision actually captures what Paul is doing in Galatians. He is saying that what I'm talking about, cursing, blessing, law, all of this stuff, Christmas, this is for the entire world. He he pulls out and says, this isn't just a Jewish thing. And in our text today, the remaining few verses in chapter 3 of Galatians, he's going to get to that. And I thought, man, what a, what a in, in two words, world vision. That, that's where he's going with this. So I just want to, last week I took you through some history to kind of set up why we're here and reminding you what Galatians is about and kind of how it fits into things. Um, and, and, uh, and here we're going to kind of wrap up some things. And, and it's actually going to be a two-part thing. There's one more part coming after Christmas. Um, I want to start off by saying this. I want you to guard how you hear what I'm saying this morning. Okay? Here's what I'm going to do this morning. I am going to stand up behind the Word of God, and I am going to diagnose some problems, and then I'm going to offer some solutions. I'm going to say, here's what's, what's wrong, and here's the way to fix that. And I'm going to do that standing behind the Word of God, meaning on its authority, on its instruction. Many of you... Even in this room, the church crowd, people who would come to church on a cold, sunny morning rather than sleep in and tailgate and get ready for the big game, right? You're here, so I'm preaching to the choir on some degree, but many even here are kind of trained in this way because this is really big in our culture. How dare you? Who are you to tell anything about my life? How can you diagnose me? What's your authority to do that? How do you know what the solutions are? Now, not all of you. I recognize some of you go, okay, the word of God's in it. I'm going to test that and see if that's true and whatnot. But that's a prevalent way of thinking. Let me just show you the double standard. Um, Christian hypocrisy is, is highlighted. People love to, to highlight Christian hypocrisy. And I would never recommend a Christian trying to defend, saying, well, Christians aren't hypocrites. I would, as a Christian, own that and say, yeah, we're hypocrites. We just are. And we need a savior, and God heals us from that. Would you, would you help me in showing my hypocrisy? That, that's how I'd handle it. I wouldn't try to defend that. Christians aren't hypocrites. Never! We've never done anything wrong! Oh, wait a minute. That's hypocritical, right, to say that. But here's the double standard. Let me show you the, a, a double standard just in, in what I'm doing. Um, week after week after week, actually for years, um, someone like Oprah can stand up, someone like Dr. Phil can stand up, even Judge Judy gets in on this. And they diagnose problems in people, and they offer solutions. And you know what people do? They applaud them. 
People buy the books that are on Oprah's self-help list. They're, they're saying, yeah, I buy into that. Man, she just gets me. She understands me. And, and now I can move forward in that because, because I've heard from her. What's she doing? All she's doing is she's diagnosing problems, right? And she's offering solutions. Now, you can change the channel on Oprah, right? You can change the channel on my voice right now. You can tune out or you can not come back to what's going on. But what's interesting is many of those same people who would applaud Dr. Phil and what he does would say, man, how dare you get up and make these absolute true statements and try to diagnose my problems and offer solutions. So I just want you to guard how you hear this um, because, uh, because, because what I'm, what I'm going to do or attempt to do is I'm really wanting to give you God's word on the, on the solution and not, and not my own. Galatians 3 is where we're at. So, so go ahead and turn to Galatians 3. While we're turning to Galatians 3, let's just get to know ourselves a little bit about who's here, okay? In my family, um, dinner time is often, uh, my, my, uh, my oldest daughter was noticing how nine-year-olds, six-year-olds, and three-year-olds love to play the raise-your-hand-if game. And I reminded her that she used to love to play that game too. So our dinner time often will be, hey, raise your hand if you hate broccoli. You know, it's like a little mutiny going on basically is what's happening. But they'll go on and on and play that. What I want to do is this. I want to just kind of get get to know who's worshiping with us here a little bit, okay? So um, just a simple raise of the hand, okay? Raise your hand if you like cats, okay? Let me see the the, the cat. Okay, there we go. There we go. Okay, put it down. Um, Raise your hands if you use Verizon, as, as, a, as a mobile service carrier, okay? Look around. All right, all right. Uh, raise your hand if you would consider yourself outgoing. Okay? I was going to ask it the other way. Raise your hand if you're an introvert. But I thought, no, that's just cruel. That's just mean, right? They're like, it's me, but I can't get it up. It, ah! All right, one more. And I know there's at least one in here, okay? Uh, raise your hand if you don't like chocolate. Okay, there you go. Wow, more, more than I thought. I knew, I, knew, I knew John would get his hand up. Um, here's why we did that. We tend to view people all the time with labels. We, we just look at people, and I, I promise you, the second someone near you put their hand up on that cat one, someone near you was suspicious. Oh, you're one of those cat people. Really? You know, I mean, I've been worshiping with you all this time, and you're a cat person? I mean, there's just... There's immediately labels that we kind of that we kind of put on each other and categories and stereotypes and all this stuff. And 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 from from as far as I know, I haven't gone and studied every culture. I only have so much time in a week. But but cultures just do this, don't they? They they put on caste systems. They they put on labels of of people. And this is you know even when it's kind of harmless fun about those who like chocolate and those who don't like chocolate, we still kind of label and categorize people. Here's what this passage of Scripture is going to talk about. It's going to dive into this. The Bible talks about and speaks to and covers all kinds of people through actually just a remarkable length of time even from a widespread range of cultures, from a widespread range of economic haves and have-nots, however you want to slice it up. The Bible speaks to all of those. But the Bible comes along and does something really crazy. It takes all of our labels, all of our stereotypes, all of our classifications and ways that we kind of divide things. And, and the Bible actually has a way of boiling it down to some really, really simple um, labels. Uh, Jesus, if you were to just jot down Luke 13, you can check me on this later. But in one chapter of the Bible, Jesus is coming along and here's what he's doing. Remember when you read the Gospels, when you hear Jesus say something like, the kingdom of God is like, right? 
He's coming in and he's, he's proclaiming what the kingdom of God is actually like. There's been some false ideas that have come along and, and people have gotten off track on some things. So here's, here's the, the Messiah, the promised Messiah walking the earth with people. And the way he taught was just awesome because he'd just be walking along and go, you know, the, the kingdom of God is like soil. And he would start to, to talk about things. In Luke 13, there's, there's a few categories that he puts out. He says, he's, he talks about good soil and he talks about bad soil in, in Luke 13. He talks about weeds and he talks about wheat. He comes along later in one chapter. He's now talking about good fish and bad fish. And Jesus had this way of, of boiling down categories to some things. Here's the, the demise, by the way, of the bad soil. The demise of the bad soil, he says, is that it's dead. It doesn't produce any fruit. Weeds were burned up in the fire... And the bad fish, as they're sorted out at the end of the age, he says, are thrown away. That's just one chapter. You, you, can, you can read it for yourself and just kind of look for categories. Look, look for how Jesus divided people. People would come along and say, uh, you know, put all kinds of labels on people. And he would come along and kind of boil it down to, to a couple of things. Jesus categorized people, I would say, mainly in, in two ways. He would say this, you're in or you're out. Now, this isn't the kind, um, kind of mushy Jesus that's often preached and proclaimed. Well, Jesus would never say something like that. Just, just read your Gospels with, with about a fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade education. Honestly, just, just read the story. What got Jesus murdered? Wasn't it this lack of kind of middle ground? You're wheat. Or you're weeds. You're a good fish or you're a bad fish. You're good soil, you're bad soil. That's just in one chapter. On and on he goes proclaiming what the kingdom of God is like. Here's a couple. John chapter 1 verse 12 says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he, Jesus, gave the right to become children of God. John 3.16, may have heard of this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So in those two passages, it's asking this, are you a rightful child or not? Are you one who's going to perish or are you one who is going to live? Now, take that idea and kind of think about your conversations with people. There are many, many people I bump into and I talk about or talk to um, and they describe themselves as children of God. And they say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a child of God. But just like in your own family or my own family, some kid can't just walk into my family and declare it so that they're my child. That's not the way it works, right? Um, that's not how we have so many kids, by the way. People aren't just doing that, okay? <laughs> Do not send your wayward kid our way. That's not, that's not how it works. There's a process to it. It doesn't work with God either. Jesus said in his day, many of you are mistaken. Many of you think you're a child of God and you'd wear that label. I'm a child of God, but you're mistaken and you're in for a surprise. So that, that indicates that, that, there is, that there is a process to this, that, that, there's, that there's details to this that we need to uncover. It's not just that we're kind of all children of God. Now, these are some really, really big themes that we're talking about. 
the, the idea of identity and worth. How, how big are identity and worth to the human soul? I mean, these are massive, massive themes that we think about all the time. They actually help drive how we spend our time and our money, what our ears pick up, what we want to try and discard, what we're trying to forget. Identity and worth. Those are, the, those are kind of some of the big themes being talked about. Now, Paul, in our passage today, look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. We're not even going to quite get to this part of it yet, but it's woven into it. 3.28, Paul picks up on this theme of labels, okay? And here's what he says. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's grabbing labels that people like to put on people. You're a cat person. Yeah, well, you don't like chocolate. You use Verizon. Silliness. And he says, man, that's all nuts. We're all one in Christ. Now, if you're a heretic, here's what you do. You take this one passage and you say, see, you become a universalist. We're all children of God. It's right. Here, it's in the Bible, right? We're all one in Christ Jesus. We're all children of God. Don't you see how you could do that? Without letting even Galatians interpret what that's even talking about, it's easy to arrive at that conclusion. But that's not what the, what the passage is teaching. Here's the title. Look at, look at the screen for a moment. What we were and what we are. What Paul's been doing for a long time in Galatians now, remember he's talking and he says, oh, foolish Galatians. Remember, it's the pastor name-calling. We kind of looked at that. Why is he doing that? It's not verbal abuse. He's trying to wake them up. He's trying to shake them out of their slumber. Sometimes when someone's way off track, you want to remind them, man, do you remember what you were? Do you remember where you were? That's what Paul's doing. He's been doing it for a while now. Man, remember what you were. And this is who you are now. Remember that. Paul's calling these things to mind. What you were under the law was this. What you are in Christ is this. And the dividing line is faith. The dividing line, the change that goes on, is faith. Let me read, starting in verse 22. I'm going to pick it up a little bit from where last week was, because, again, these numbers are a bit arbitrary, right? And trying to break this passage up was was challenging. Um, Galatians 3.22 says this. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ Jesus, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So if you're taking notes this morning, uh, it's really simple. It's just what we were and then what we are. We're going to spend uh, <coughs> a little bit of time on what we were first. What we were is prisoners. What were we under the law? We were imprisoned. Now, what do all prisoners, no matter how long their sentence is or anything else, or even whether it's you know uh, prison, imprisoned to a substance or imprisoned in a relationship, what do all prisoners long for? They long for freedom. That's what they want. Because if they had their freedom, they wouldn't be prisoners anymore. So that's across the board. What prisoners want is their freedom. And before faith, we were no different. That's what Paul is saying here. Before faith, you're no different. You're imprisoned 
under the law. First, he says in 22 that Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. We looked at that a tiny bit last week. And now he goes on to say that we're held captive. We're imprisoned. I want you to think kind of protective custody here rather than punishment. Now, I know a picture of Alcatraz doesn't really give that impression. That's more punishment, right? Uh, freezing cold, you know, cell block in the middle of the ocean. Uh, that's, that's straight punishment. But the, but the word that he chooses to use here is sometimes applied to a city. Now, track with me here. When, when it was applied to a city, the idea was this, putting military guards in that city, and that held two purposes. The first, pers- first purpose of that was to protect the city from evil intruders. So it was to keep evil out, but it was also done to keep people in that they wouldn't desert or they wouldn't flee the city and thereby harm themselves. So do you see how that's the idea of protective custody? That's the idea that he's kind of communicating in terms of what we are under law. Remember, the law isn't something bad. I'm not up here preaching against the law. Paul isn't preaching against the law. What he's showing, he's trying to show is the purpose of the law. The, the law was invented. It was dreamt up and it was given as a gift by a good and loving father. So it's not just straight imprisonment in terms of punishment. Think more protective custody. We were held in custody both for our own protection under the law and so that we couldn't escape. Remember that? The law shuts up people under sin so that it says, no, right here, you are a lawbreaker because the law has laid that out. And then verse 23 says this, that there was the coming of faith, that there was revelation that came. This is synonymous with the coming Christ child. Isn't it beautiful that we're doing this with Christmas decorations all around us? What he's saying is this, before Christmas, you're a prisoner. Remember what the prophecies said about the Christ child and the Messiah that was going to come and say, save? He was going to set captives, what? Free. Do you see that? Set free from what? Paul's answering that. We're set free from things we didn't even know necessarily that we were under before. So not only are we prisoners, but we're also minors. Look at verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified. In Paul's day, it was common for kids from about the age of six to about the age of puberty to have a guardian or kind of a nanny, to put it in more modern terms, that would basically um, take kids around and make sure they got to where they went to and, um, and, and all of that. And, and their role was, was to protect kids from evil influences, protect them from harm, and to demand their obedience. And kind of the rumor on these, I mean, by all accounts, what you read about these, the general, the general sense of these is that they were very harsh disciplinarians. And when they reached into their toolbox to kind of help keep kids in line, you know what they went to first? Physical restraint. Physical punishment. They used a switch. They spanked. They, they, they whipped them in the line. So it wasn't like a warm, fuzzy nanny, like, Sound of music lady. It wasn't any of that. It was, it was harsh, disciplined guardian type. So what Paul's saying is this. What you were before under the law is you were a prisoner. What you also were is a minor. Now, we have these today. We just don't call them uh, nannies or any of that. We call them uh, car seats, right? Think about a car seat for a minute, all right? Many of you touch and use a car seat every single day. What a car seat is doing is very similar in some ways to what this guardian would do. We place our kids in a car seat for their good and for their care, right? 
and physical restraint is used, right, to keep these little monsters from escaping, right, much to their harm, and to keep them in place and to protect them from harm, okay? So you'll never see a car seat the same. You're going to be like, yeah, I could preach a theological sermon right here on this car seat as, as you look at it. Now, as you look at the car seat, would you look at that and say, gosh, that's some weird form of torture. You must hate your kids because you have a car seat. That depends on who you ask, right? Some people view all rules as a weird form of torture that's just meant to keep you down. Um, there's, you know, if, if toddlers could have a little Facebook page, they'd create a little Facebook page, and they would all decry the horrors of car seats and how unfair they are and how brutal parents are for using them. You have moms talking at a park, and they're like, yeah, which brand do you use? You know, I recycle mine after every six months just in case it goes bad, and the styrofoam, you know, there's all kinds of science to it and this and that, and they're talking away. Some people view all rules, all law, as just a weird form of torture that you shouldn't ever submit yourself to. What Paul's doing is he's showing kind of the parental view of saying, why the law? Why was it given? It was given for some things. Let me point out two things about car seats really quick. One is it's for their own good. I try to convince my children daily that it's for their good, their, their own good, and it's not working. They, they are just not convinced of this. I mean, they'll make themselves rigid. They'll fuss. They'll fling. They'll do all kinds of stuff. Um, we're, we're kind of working on that. Um, but it really is this, this picture of the law that it's, that it's for your own good, even if you don't like it. Second thing about car seats is this. It's for a certain season, right? Now, I don't know if you track with this, but the way the laws go, we're on a trajectory right now that seniors in high school pretty soon are going to be in car seats. It's wacky. I mean, it really is. Six-point harness, you know, they're like, Mom, come on, really? You know, you're like, it's the law. You know, we're just on this weird thing. But right now, you can still age out of car seats, right? You age out or you weigh out of car seats. That's the way that the laws currently work. Or height, that's right, it's height also. Um, so, so there is an end time. So, you know, for any kids in here, I don't think they're still here. Uh, there, is a, there is an end coming, but that's a picture of the law. You age out. You're a minor right now, but, but this was for a certain season. It wasn't always meant to be this way, that you're always going to cruise around in a, in, a, in a car seat confined in this way. Look at the time reference that's revealed in our passage. Look at verse 23. Before faith came, right? Same passage. Until faith would be revealed. Those are time references. Look at verse 24. Until Christ came. Do you see how there's a, there's a season where this is necessary? God, the loving Father, said we're going to put a car seat in place and it's going to be for a season of time because it's necessary. And then let's, let's read 25 and 26 together. There was a season for this, but now. And once again, here's another one of the great but nows of Scripture. Verse 25. But now that faith has come... We are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. If you're taking notes, what you'll see is this. You'll see um, what we were, and then a little tiny uh, word that says, what does it say, change? Change, period. I wrote it in some small lettering for a reason. Sometimes, Sometimes this... This little word change um, happens in kind of a in kind of a undramatic way, much like the Christ child coming in a very undramatic, unceremonious way. But it changed everything, and there's a period at the end of it. There's a, there's a fundamental change that happened, and it, and it changes everything. But sometimes it's small and almost imperceptible. What changed? Faith came. 
revelation happened. Jesus was born at, at the right time. Now, Paul, Paul pulls out just for a second. Let me, let me show you this. Um, a few different places in the book of Galatians, Paul is getting at something called God time. Okay? God time is not ever our time. We almost always think God is late or early on things. Amen? I mean, it just feels like, God, surely, I mean, you know, are you up there, right? Those prayers, that means we're not on God time. Now, the older I get, the older I get, I mean, the, the more I can honestly say I'm beginning to trust God time a whole lot more. It's getting a lot easier. It's not easy, but it's getting a lot easier. Why? Because I can look back on experiences and go, wow, I wanted this to happen so quick. Praise God, it didn't. I wanted, I wanted this to, to never happen. Praise God, it did. That's God time. Now, if you're, a, if you're a, in a car seat under the law, it can't come soon enough for you to break free from under the law. I'm sure that in that mode, you would have longed for this to happen. Turn a page over or so and, um, and get to chapter 4. What, what Paul's already covered by review, a promise was given, right? At the right time, he broke in and spoke to Abram and gave a promise. 400-some years later, a law was given. Now look at 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, that's God time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those of us who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Do you see how you see different scriptures in different lights once you've been kind of soaking in a theme? When I read this around Christmas time, first of all, this is Paul's uber-condensed Christmas story. No shepherds, no star, no frill, no glitz. This is the Christmas story right here. This is what's going on. And the fullness of time came. God broke into history and changed everything. You know what stood out to me about this, though? Born under the law. I mean, when I, when I catch the flow of Galatians, I'm like, wow, I've never seen that before. I've preached on that text before, and I've not seen that quite so clearly. He was born under the law so that he could redeem those who were under the law and adopt us as sons. So what changed is that faith had come. And Paul means two different things. The first faith has come is that revelation came, that Christ came. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. But the second faith has come is this, that we believed the message of Christ, that we received his offer as true. I want to show you this picture again of, of San Quentin. This is San Quentin Prison, not far from us. If you've come across the Richmond Bridge before, you've probably seen it. For those of you who are Christians in here this morning, I want you to think of what you are right now as compared to what you were before Christ broke through. I just want you to think about that because sometimes we get really wowed by some super dramatic testimony of things, but as I've been a Christian, I, I, see, I see the reality of my state beforehand all the more as more dark than I ever could have imagined it. I said this last week that the blessing that Christ brings is so much bigger, so much bigger than we usually give credit for. And conversely, the curse, what we are under the law, what we are under the curse is so much worse than we normally think about. So what were you before Christ and what, what are you now in Christ? 
And think about how faith was that key that unlocked the, the prison chain. Faith is what opened the door for this. It was a step of faith for you to receive the word of Jesus Christ as true and to, and to rest in that, to place your faith in that. And then you began to receive this new life that Christ was giving it to you. I put the word change in a small little thing, but Jesus thought that that change was so big and so significant that he, that he coined this term for it. You must be what? Born again. That's a pretty big change. That's not just keep, keep going where you're going, just nudge it by a few degrees. That's not it. He's saying you must be born again to be in the family of God. That's a pretty significant change. And that's a change that, that, is, that, is, that is a God-sized task, right? That's what, that's what faith does. Our Heavenly Father frees us from the law and to love. Now, I want to talk to just the parents um, for a moment. Parents, you use all kinds of methods in different seasons to get your kids to obey you, right? I mean, you just do. There's times where you use a certain method here, and it changes. If it, if, if it didn't change, we'd have it all figured out in the first couple of years. We would have trial and errored it, and we would just had it. But it changes through different seasons. Now, if you ever see a child melting down near me, um, then you will see, out of the corner of your eye, I will sometimes try to suppress it because it's a little weird, but you might see a little smile come on my face. Okay. Now, if you ever see that, I just want to give you understanding right now as to what's going on of why I'm smiling that this child is, is melting down. Um, this happens a lot. This happened recently. I was in an airport terminal. I was, I was, I was watching uh, two kids, actually, tag team mom. And completely melt down. And, um, and I just smiled. So I just put my book up so, I, so they, they couldn't see me smile. Here's why I'm smiling. I'm smiling, number one, because I understand. I really do. I see that experience. I just go, man, I've, I've been there. I'm smiling, number two, because um, I am watching what works and what doesn't. So I'm actually taking mental notes. And when I see mommy get down and say, mommy's going to do this or that, and kid goes, Wah! and like redoubles it. I'm like, that's lame. That's, I'm not using that one. That ain't working, lady. I can just, I'm a little more objective right now. Don't, you know, put that one back in the toolbox. That's not working right now. Um, I'm also smiling because in that moment, um, I really miss my own kids. And, and something about these little maniacs melting down reminds me of my own children. Okay? So when I see kids melting down, it brings this weird, this weird little thing. But mostly... Number four, mostly I'm smiling because they're not my kids and they're not, <laughs> and they're not my problem right now. And that brings me glee and joy in that moment, okay? So, I, it's nothing personal. If your kid's melting out at the next welcome lunch, it's really nothing personal. There's just some internal things going on. Uh, most parents long for their kids to eventually come to a point where they would obey their parents out of, out of trust and out of love. That, that's where parents, I think most parents, are trying to get their kids to. But there is a season of time where you will settle for fear and you will settle for physical restraint even to keep your child safe, right? If my three-year-old is convinced that the middle of Cherry Avenue is the best place for her tea party, 
and is, and is really just dead set on getting there. Uh, have you ever tried to reason with a three-year-old? Come to my house. I'll let you try to reason with my three-year-old sometime. We're not at the point where it's always going to be love and trust and respect, and, and, and I'm just going to take your word, even though I really, 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 really want to have a tea party on Cherry Avenue, so I'm going to physically restrain that child if I need to. No questions asked. I won't feel the slightest bit bad. Is that because I'm a bad dad? No, because I love my kid. Now, I want that to be for a season, right? We're growing toward the gold standard of, um, of obedience, which is out of love and trust and respect. And here's what I know. Only Christ can really uh, ultimately instill that. I know because I was a kid who was a naughty kid and needed kind of the, the nanny of the law to come and reprimand me and to come and restrain me and to come and show me my, my wayward ways. But then Christ came into my life. And I can say, not with, for sure, not with perfect 100%, but I now obey God. I now follow Jesus out of love and trust, not out of fear, not out of some kind of physical restraint, not out of some kind of a, of a thing hovering over me. And it makes all the difference in the world. The beloved son came and not only modeled this for us, as we see Jesus obey, he does so out of great love and trust of his father, not out of fear. But he also gifts it to us. So, so he models it to us, but he also gifts that kind of obedience for us. You know, I love what Jesus says at one point. He says this, and, and the one who's going to love the most in all of this is the one who's been forgiven the most. You know what that passage is talking about? He's not talking about some kind of a, some kind of a scale. What he's saying is this. Those who realize their need for forgiveness the most, man, they're, they're just all in. They can't contain it anymore. They love on that, on that deep, deep level. All right, that's what we were in Christ. Faith is the dividing line. We're going we're gonna to just start into what we now are in Christ. Okay, this is, where, this is where Paul's been driving to. Look at how much Jesus is in the next few verses. 26, in Christ, we are all sons of God through faith. 27, baptized into Christ and have put on Christ. Verse 28, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Number 20, or verse 29, in Christ, that is, we belong to him, then we're Abraham's offspring. And this is just a Jesus passage. There's all kinds of Jesus being given to us here. What we are is vastly different from what we were. Verses 26 to 27, we are now beloved sons of God. Now, ladies in the room, do not freak out about this being sons, okay? Trust me, you want to be a son of God. Paul's very careful with his language here and what it would mean to be a son, a beloved son. There's a little bit of awkwardness in, in language sometimes. Um, let, me, let me show you how it works both ways. All the dudes in the room don't normally like being called a bride. That would make them want to punch you out if you call me a bride normally. But you know what we are collectively? Men and women, we are what? We're the bride of Christ, right? So let's not get too hung up right now on, on gender things. Again, there's some, there's some base things in us that want to fight that and all that. Just, just go with it. We're going to look at that more in a, in a couple of weeks. But we're sons of God. How great is it to be a beloved son? I recognize that that question probably lands on a lot of different places in this room. A lot of different places. 
Some of you are wanting me to hurry up and get on to something else right now. Because it's not a happy question for you as you think on your own earthly father and parenting that's gone on. I want you to just look. You can jot this down and look at it later. But Jeremiah 31.20 says this. O Ephraim is my dear, dear son, my child in whom I take pleasure. Every time I mention his name, my heart bursts with longing for him. Everything in me cries out for him. Softly and tenderly, I wait for him. As an exercise... Remove the name Ephraim and put your own name in there. Ephraim, by the way, is God's name for his people in this passage. This is from the prophet Jeremiah communicating the heart of the father about how how he feels about his kids. The exercise would be to take the word Ephraim away and say, in Christ Jesus, Jim is my beloved son. And Maureen is my beloved son. And to, and to read this and to celebrate and think about what is it that would bother me in this life if I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that my heavenly Father has a heart that bursts with longing for me, that feels this way about me. This is what the Son Jesus came to proclaim. He proclaimed this message, no matter how you were parented, no matter how old you are, there is a good and loving father that longs for you to find your way home and be parented by him. He wants to be your father. I know that some of you here dread going here because you were parented terribly. Some of you in this room were abused. Some of you were flat out abandoned by your dad. And yet here in the scriptures, this morning, God has you sitting here, and by his revealed word, he's, he's revealing that through faith, he wants to make you a beloved son. Some of you already know that, and you're being reminded of it right now, and it's bringing great peace to your life. And you're going, oh yeah, I forgot. I forgot what I have in Christ. I forgot my standing in Christ. Man, those, mount, those mountains are shrinking into molehills in my life right now. That's good news to celebrate. That's good news to focus on. I want to wrap up with a couple of action items. This is kind of a pause because really we're going to carry on part two in a couple of weeks. If faith has not yet come to you and you're ready today, today's the day of salvation. At just the right moment, faith came, revelation came. God broke through into human history and gave us Jesus Christ, born of a virgin Mary. That's what we're celebrating this whole month, Advent, and looking forward to all of that. And at just the right time in my life, faith came. Faith broke through. And there's two parts of it. There's an unconscious part where the sovereign God is working, and he chose me before the foundation of the world. And there's a conscious conscious part where I took the action of responding to that in faith. And I don't know how the two of those merge exactly. I really don't. Is God sovereignly involved in, in, in who responds in faith? Absolutely. He's sovereign. He's God. There's all kinds of scripture that teaches that. Is there a conscious part of us responding to that in faith and taking it? Absolutely. There's, there's both of those in scripture. So that's what's going on in this thin dividing line of faith. And today, as simple as right now in your own heart, you pray and say, man, I repent of being a sinner. Um, I, I want in on this. 
I believe it. I buy into this. I've still got questions, but I, but I believe this. That's how simple it was for me. I was a junior in high school when God really broke through and just showed me that. Today's the day of salvation. If that's you, respond in faith. Secondly, for maybe a lot of us in this room this morning, I want to challenge you um, to celebrate the rest of this season um, just looking at what you already have. Celebrate this season looking at what you already have. And I'm not, taking, I'm, not, I'm not talking about taking inventory of your stuff or even your health or even your relationships and some of the things that are, that are, that are here and now. But I want you to take stock of what you already have, what you are in Christ. And sometimes just going back and reflecting on what you were under the law helps that. Thirdly, the second reason I'm wearing my World Vision t-shirt this morning is this. God the Father has always battled for children and the destitute. You read his heart for children and the destitute through the whole Bible and you'll see it. And what he does is he's actually put that spirit in us by faith such that when we become sons of God, when we join the family, that becomes part of our heartbeat. It's been amazing to be at this church. I can't tell you the number of fingers and ways that that the Spirit of God has risen up and caused change in, I mean, it's almost countless homes and kids' lives because of just the different things that have gone on here. And God's continuing to raise up and bring new people to this mission work. Chris, raise your hand in the back for a moment. Right back by Chris are some World Vision cards um, that are are still available. Uh, Several of those have gone. This is kind of wave two of this. This isn't, we're not going to play long, drawn-out, sappy music. We're not tearing kids on the screen, none of that. All we want to say is this. There's a, there's a tagline to, to World Vision which says this, building a better world for children. And I look at that and go, wow, part of the cool thing about World Vision and helping a kid out is this. You look at your own adoption of God and you go, man, God, is, God, God has been about building a, a better world for his children from the day it, it fell under the curse. He began working this. Read about it in Genesis. There's coming a Messiah. You're going to bruise his heel. He's going to stomp on your head, Satan. And it's going to be done. So from the very beginning when things got screwed up, God's been building a better world for his children. We're just going to kind of, we, we're going to get to carry it on in a little small tangible way uh, as an act of worship um, back there. So I want to just highlight, highlight that. Help when child is coming up. There's so many things on our website of ways for you to be involved um, directly, hands-on, with, with, with perpetuating this kind of heart for kids that God has. Let me invite the band up. Uh, we're going we're gonna to shift right now and, and just move into a time of communion. And the passage I want you to think about uh, for communion this morning is this. In just a couple moments, the, the trays are going to come by, and I would invite you to do one of two things. We're not going to stop and celebrate later on together. We're gonna just going to invite you right then and there to, to take the elements and put the cup back or you can take and hold it and pass it and take it over the next couple of songs. But what communion is about, what we're celebrating on this Christmas communion is this. A, this is for the sons of God. This is for those who by faith are in the family of God. So, so we would ask for those of you who, who aren't ready yet, who haven't made that, 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 um, that expression, to, to just pass the tray. And not do so with shame. We're not trying to shame anyone or anything else. It's just that, that this is something that Christ left for his children through faith. And as you pass, let me, let me direct your thoughts 
to hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ was even born, a prophecy that was given about him. And it was depicting who he was. It says that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. That would be under the curse and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus, today we celebrate you as the alive and well ruling king that you are. And God, I pray that this this morning on all of our hearts in here it would fall afresh on us what it is that you did and what it is that you're continuing to do in our life and the great hope and joy that that brings to us. God, for those who may have walked into this room spiritually darkened, I pray by the miracle of your Holy Spirit that you have illumined, that you've brought light and shed light on their situation such that today they would say, I want to receive this. I trust that Jesus fulfilled and and is who he was. I've heard it before, but God's made it make sense to me now. I want to step across that line by faith. I want want these doors to be unlocked for me. If that's you right now, a simple prayer of repentance that just says, God, I'm a sinner. I need rescue. I trust and believe that you took my sin for me. I receive the the gift of eternal life. I receive now the right to become your child. I trust you in this. Amen.